Welcome to the Renaissance Church Podcast. Our mission is to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life in all the earth. This is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church here in Richmond, Texas. And if you've not joined us in a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we would love to have you join us. You can find out more information at rin-church.org. And I pray that you are encouraged and edified by the proclamation of God's word today. I want to begin in John chapter 1. If you have a copy of scriptures and want to go there with me, John chapter 1 is where we're going to start today. And uh, I just want to begin by reading a passage. This is the prologue. This is the beginning of John's gospel. And I want to read this. And then I, I have some things that are on my heart this week that I want to share with you. John chapter 1. I'm just going to start in verse 1 and read this first section. We're going to have it on the screen if you want to read along with us. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Wow, that's a big statement. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them to the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this is, this is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I know that's, that's a big portion of Scripture, and there's a lot of stuff in there, and I don't have time to talk about all the things in there, but I had three things happen this week that sort of changed the direction of what I thought I was going to share with you this morning. You see, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. Amen? Some of you are like, no, it's not. Do we have anyone here that, honestly, you just don't like Christmas music? I mean, you can be, a, we're a real church, okay? If you don't like, no. See, everyone, okay, oh, okay, we have one in the back. And he's, he's, a, he's a tweenager, so sorry. Oh, you're a teenager now? Oh, my goodness. You have graduated, my friend. 
I love it. I love Christmas. We were, you know, I love the lights. I love the traditions. I love family gatherings. I love gift giving and all the things that we do around Christmas. I love. But these three things kind of made me think a little bit differently about the season or maybe about how some people think about the season. I'll just share what they were. The first was my wife had a conversation with a teacher at her school. My wife is a first year teacher at uh, Briscoe. Uh, and so she's, she's teaching there and she uh, was talking to this teacher between classes about how um, we have to be careful in the public school system uh, about using the word Christmas. You, you, you guys know that, right? Um, that, so they, they don't say the Christmas break. We say it's a winter break because we know there's all kinds of people that live here and they celebrate all different things, right? So there's, there's a, um, they're, they're just careful about those words in the public school system. If you don't know that, that's, that's how it is. And Casey was like, you know, it's, it's kind of like Thanksgiving is the celebration of a historical event. So I, I know that people kind of get upset when we say Christmas, but we're celebrating a, a, a historical event. And the teacher said, but are we? Like, really? Meaning, did that really happen? Like, was there a historical Jesus? And so she told me this story, and I was like, well, that's, that's interesting. And then later, I was reading an article, and, and it referenced a 2015 survey done by the Church of, of England of English people. So, you know, 4,000 plus people in England. And of the people they surveyed, 40% of them thought that Jesus was a mythical or a legendary figure, but was not an actual person. Wow, four out of 10 people in England in 2015 thought that Jesus was an idea, but not a historical figure. That's interesting. And then later in the week, uh, I, I think it was uh, after Giving Tuesday when everybody's posting about, you know, give towards this thing, and, and Acts 29 put a post up about three point. 5 billion people or something like this that have not heard the good news of Jesus yet. And, and the post was basically like, give to support this cause. Like there's all these people that have not heard the gospel. Like help us get the gospel to these people. And I saw some comments. And so I read the comments and one of the comments says, I'm so glad that 3.5 million people have not heard this fairy tale. And so this is like a common thing. It's becoming more common if you have followed the trends in the Western world. We're kind of, uh, we're kind of growing at the poles. And, and what I mean is that the spiritual nuns, those that would say that maybe I, I'm not sure about all that stuff, so I don't really ascribe to anything, or people who are like adamant, like, no, all of that is fake. It's false. Religion is, is the bane of our existence. We need to get rid of it. Like atheists, all that's growing. But at the same time, Christianity is growing as well. So there's, there's kind of like this, this polarizing that's happening. And I just started to wonder about the skepticism around the season. Um, we live in a very, very skeptical world, right? And I think that there are lots of people 
that they're not sure what to believe or who to believe. And what they don't want to do is they don't want to be duped into something that is false, right? And so as we come into a season where we celebrate the birth of Christ, the, what we just read about, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The son of God came and, and became a baby, right? That, like, that's a mind-blowing thing. And for lots of people in the world, they might be thinking, I don't even know if that really happened. Which would mean like, is it? ridiculous for a bunch of people to celebrate Christmas. And I'm guessing that probably if you're in this room today, you've probably made up your mind about that. You're convinced about Jesus in your own heart. But maybe some of you here might have a little bit of skepticism in you. Or you hear someone say something like that and you're like, I don't even know how I would respond to that. Like, do, do you know what you would say if someone said that to you while you were sitting at the water cooler at work? Did, did this really happen? And so this, this morning, I, I'm titling this message, A Reasonable Christmas. Because here's what you need to know about our faith, is it is a faith, and it requires faith, but it is not an empty-headed an empty or blind faith. That, that there's actually things that we can look at that help us understand whether the testimonies that we have are true, are accurate, are reliable. And today, I just want to look at some things that John says in here that I believe help us as we think about the reasonableness of Christmas. Is it reasonable to believe in Christ coming? So Christmas Let's talk about the word Christmas. It, it, it comes from Christ Mass. And of course, most of you in here are probably not Catholic, but maybe you have some Catholic background or some Catholic uh, you know, understanding. The Mass would be the gathering of the people. And it really centers on this moment and where the priest would give a blessing. And it, it was like the sending out of, of the church. And so the mass would be like the sending of, of the saints or, or the believers into the world. And so Christmas really means the Christ sending, that, that God sent the Christ to us. And, and it is what we celebrate, not the ideology of Christ, not the philosophy called Christianity, but we're celebrating an actual person, a historical Jesus. And so, if you're skeptical, hopefully this will be helpful for you. Or if you have friends or family members and you're like, I don't know what to say, maybe this will equip you this season. So, in John chapter 1, this, this portion that we just read, this beautiful prologue, right? It, it's, it's poetic, this word, and the word is Jesus that he's talking about. And it's packed with these events and this significance. And John tells us why he wrote the book, why he wrote the gospel of John. And it's later in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, I, he, he wrote these down so that you might believe that Jesus is 
the Messiah. That's why he wrote the book. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may, get this, have life in his name. That's the reason why he wrote this this account, which makes it an incredible place for us to start if we're skeptical or we're dealing with skepticism about Christianity. And so I want to just spend some time looking at what he says. And I just want to begin by pointing out what he says in verse 14. And this is kind of the centerpiece of what I'm saying today. Here's what he says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. We observed his glory the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth that he's giving us here, this celebration. And what he does is he gives us theology about about God. It tells us something about God, but it also gives us Christology. It tells us, like, who is Christ? But included in his words, he includes credibility. And that's what I want to show us this morning. The, fir- the first point that I, I want to, to make for us is that we need to see what points back to Christ's birth. I've shared with you guys in the past um, that in college, I went to the um, wonderful university called Southwest Texas State University. Go Bobcats. There's no Bobcats in here. And if there were, they wouldn't say a word because we have zero school spirit, okay? And so I went to Texas State University. I was enrolled in a class called Philosophy 1310. My professor was Dr. Zhu. We met in the Alcac Teaching Theater, which held about 300 students. And it was uh, packed, it was packed. And he would say derogatory things about Christianity over and over and over again because he thought that you were an idiot if you believed that Christ was the Messiah, the Lord, that you thought he was real. And so every time that he would say something derogatory, there was a girl that sat behind me that was in the same college ministry. She would kick my chair. So he'd say something about Christianity, boom. And honestly, I probably wasn't even paying attention fully. I'll be very honest with you. I wasn't fully paying attention to what he was saying. And she would kick my chair, and it was her way of saying, man up. Guys, you, you ever have that where, you're, where your wife is like, come on. And you're, you know, you're holding out your man card, and she's like, I'm going to take it from you if you don't do something about this. That's how I felt inside, okay? That's how I felt. And so I would raise my hand. And then eventually he would call me and I would say something terrible. I don't even know what I said. And all this whole time period, okay, throughout this whole semester-long class period, I am the sole defender of Jesus Christ in a room of 300 people in almost every class period. He would say something, she'd kick my chair, and I'd raise my hand and I'd try to say something. Now, I was very active in my church. I was very active in my college ministry. And what I didn't let everyone know is that inside I was really having a crisis of faith. Where I was hearing this sort of constant onslaught of things 
against my faith, against Christianity, against the claims of the Bible. And while I was standing up, trying to, to stand up for the faith, on the inside, I was really thinking like, am I an idiot for believing this? Is this really true? And the question I think that everyone is asking is, is this real? Is this real? Is this faith real? Is Jesus real? And um, one of the turning points in that time in my life is I went to a small gathering that our church was holding. There was a ministry team that had come in, I think from Ireland or someplace. And um, as they were, uh, they'd finished the worship and a guy got up and he, he stands in front of everyone and he goes, someone here is struggling in their mind and I want you to come forward. And whenever that happens in church, I get all excited because I'm like, who's gonna go up right now? Who's going up, you know? Like, who's struggling? And then after that like little pause, it's almost like the Lord just tapped me on the shoulder and he's like, he's talking about you. And so it was like a prophetic word, literally, where I, I realized that, oh, he's talking to me. And I went up to the front and they were praying for folks, for stuff. And he just began to pray over me, all these things. And one of the things he, he said is, he's, I didn't tell him a word. He just started praying over me. And when someone is praying in that way, it's like they just, they know the things that you need to hear, right? And he says to me, God is big enough to handle your questions. He said, you don't have to go f solve your question and then come to God. Bring your question to him. And so I started this process as a young man in a crisis of faith of bringing my questions to God. And what happened is all of a sudden, all the confusion began to lift and I began to see some things that helped me understand the credibility of our faith. And it starts with seeing what points back to Christ's birth. I... Um, I began to realize that the farther away that we get from a historical event, the more question marks we have about that event. Does that, does that make sense to you? It's like this. In 1999, you caught a five-foot-long sailfish on a deep-sea fishing trip, and it was the most exciting thing in your life. But by 2010, the fish has grown to six and a half feet long. Does that make sense? I don't know if you have any stories like that that you tell and your family's kind of like, ah, I don't know if that's really what happened. He's kind of getting crazy now, right? You know, as time goes on, there's more question marks about an event that happens. And like the fish story, there's, there's, there's an accusation about Christianity that's like, it's bigger in the retelling is what they're saying. That's actually um, an atheist talking point. It's bigger in the retelling. And so, as I began to wrestle with this, um, I, I started to think of, if, if something that's far away has a lot of question marks, then rather than starting with say, oh, let's figure out if God really created the world, we'll start all the way back at the beginning, and then we'll work our way forward to figure out like, Oh, okay, oh, now I know that Jesus was the Christ. No, no, no. It would make more sense. Almost like you, you have, if you can go to that timeline for me, the next slide. You can't see that at all, can you? 
You can't make out a single word, can you? Okay, I'll just point out what this says real fast. So right here, this is 90 AD. This is when the canon of the Bible is closed, okay? This is 30 AD. This is when we, you know, about the time when Christ was crucified, resurrected, ascended. Pentecost happens right after this. Then we have the Christmas incarnation right here. And then we have this 400 period of, uh, 400 year period of silence. And then we have uh, this, this exile's return. We have the prophets. We have the kings. We have the judges. We have Moses. And all the way at the end, we've got creation and fall and flood. And so as I was working through my crisis of faith, I began to think of it more like, rather than trying to figure out all the stuff way at the beginning, what if we like followed the, the historical stepping stones that are closest to us, that have the least amount of question marks, and then we worked our way backwards to Jesus? And this is what we see John telling us in verse 14, is he uses this phrase, we have observed his glory. We've observed his glory. So John is writing this book that we're reading in about 64 to 70 AD. Within his lifetime, obviously, after Jesus is you know, crucified, resurrected, ascended, Pentecost, all that stuff happens. So all these people that saw him are still alive when all of these accounts are being written. And so we have eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life, all written in this harmony. Like all these stories line up and they tell us about Jesus. These are eyewitness accounts. Now, if you're a skeptic, you're like, but are there any other accounts that are not biblical? Because those guys had already drank the Kool-Aid, right? So we're not sure if we can believe what they're saying. So is there anyone else saying things about Jesus that say that he was a historical person? And the answer is, yeah, there are. There's a Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus. He, was a, he wrote a history of Judaism in AD 93. He makes two references to Jesus. One, they think that maybe Christian scholars might have like sort of colored it just a little bit, but there's one that they're, they're absolutely certain is, is a trustworthy um, you know, historical reference. And he refers to James the brother of Jesus, in his words, the so-called Christ. So here we have a non-Christian historian who says Jesus was a real person. 20 years after him, there were Roman politicians named Pliny and Tacitus, and both of them referenced Christianity and Jesus. And Tacitus records that Jesus was executed while Pontius Pilate was the prefect in charge of Judea during this time period, and Tiberius was the emperor, the emperor during this time period. And all of these things, they line up perfectly with the accounts of the Bible tell us. And I found this quote from an article by Simon Gathercole in The Guardian. Here's what he says. Strikingly, there was never any debate in the ancient world about whether Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. 
In the earliest literature of the Jewish rabbis, Jesus was denounced as the illegitimate child of Mary and a sorcerer. Among pagans, the satirist Lucian and philosopher Celsus dismissed Jesus as a scoundrel. But we know of no one in the ancient world who questioned whether Jesus lived. Meaning that all of these historical writers, they, they may not have believed in the claims of Jesus, but they acknowledged that he was a real person. And what happens to us is when someone makes a claim like, you know, I think that's just a legend. I think that's just a myth. I don't think that really happened. Is there's something in us that we don't wanna feel stupid. We don't wanna be stupid. We haven't done all the research. And so when you hear that, you kind of wilt on the inside and you're like, well, I don't, maybe they're right. And I just want you to know they're not. They're not. Jesus was a real historical person because of all these things that point back to him. The second thing is that we need to see what points forward to Christ's birth. And here's what John does for us in this passage. In verses six through nine, he references John the Baptist. And he says that he comes as a witness to testify about the light. And then he quotes the words of John the Baptist in which he says in verse 15, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now, why is that important? Well, what John is trying to do is he's trying to build a credibility structure for you as a person who would read this account. And he's talking about the fulfillment of prophecy. It's very, very important for you to know that in about 700 years or so before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about this child that was to come. In, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, he talks about John the Baptist coming before Jesus coming. And he says this, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Malachi 3, he says, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. This is what John the Baptist did. And then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming. In Isaiah 7, the one that we quote often during the Christmas season, it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And what John's doing is he's giving us some credibility clues to say, look, no, no, this is the fulfillment of what all the prophets had been saying, right? That all these things, these prophecies were pointing forward and there were numerous prophecies. It also, we also know that all these Old Testament stories were prefiguring Christ. I know you've heard all these before, but when in the garden, 
Adam and Eve, they fall and they sin, and God has to remove them from the garden. It says that he, he covers them with skins. He kills an animal and he covers them with skins. And it was a picture of what Jesus was going to do. We have a story after story that, that reveal this prefiguring, the delivering of Noah's family in an ark, that God's going to provide a way to save them from judgment and wrath and destruction. We, we see this with Abraham and Isaac, right? And, and you know the story of God tells him to, 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 uh, to kill his own son, and he's prefiguring, and he gets up there, and Abraham's, he's tied him up, and he's, he's got the knife in the air, and he's like, okay, like, God, like, if, this, if you're going to stop me, this is the time, right? And the angel says, stop. Now I know that you fear the Lord, and there's a ram caught in a thicket, and it's like the Lord saying, no, no, I'm going to provide the sacrifice, and I'm going to be the one that lays down my son for you. We have the miracles of the prophets we have Moses and a bronze serpent. We have David and Goliath. We have all these stories, and all of it was pointing forward to this one moment, historical event in history where Christ would come, where the word would become flesh and dwell among us. I don't even have time to talk about all the archaeological things that are being discovered right now. This is actually a really exciting time to live because they're finding archaeological discoveries that, that confirm the names in places and events that we read about all over our scripture. And in my crisis of faith, where, where I landed is that we can follow these stepping stones back to Christ. And Christ becomes, the way I picture it is this. If you've seen a movie, like we don't have these in America, but probably like in England or whatever, they would have the keyhole and people could like lean down and they could look through the keyhole and see what was happening in the room. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? The keyhole, right? I, I know your house doesn't have this. Mine doesn't have this, but some houses somewhere do have these things. It's a keyhole that you look through. And, and it dawned on me that if I could follow this credibility back to Jesus, that Jesus was the one that helped me understand all of history, ancient human history before that. The way that John says it is this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Meaning, if you can get Jesus, you can understand all of human history. It's phenomenal. It's mind-blowing that the eternal son of God would come and fuse himself with a human embryo and become flesh and blood. The last thing is this, is that we need to see what Christ's birth points us to. There's this passage in this verse 10 that we read, and it tells us that Jesus was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. That he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, meaning the, the, 
the rejection of Christ that we see today was happening in the time of Christ, right? We know that. It's always been this way. But then he says this, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And what John is saying is this, because Christ was born, you can be born. Because Christ was born, you can be born. Meaning that if God can come and, and become flesh and dwell among us, then he can absolutely take your life and turn it upside down. He can fill you with his life. He can open your eyes. He can open your ears. He can make you spiritually alive. You can be born again by faith in Jesus. And in doing that, just as the son of God came, you become a child of God, a son or a daughter of King Jesus, all because of Christ's birth. Lee Strobel um, wrote a book called The Case for Christ. It's actually great if you're, if you're dealing with skepticism, but I heard him share a story. And um, his son, growing up, had a, a, an allergy to pet dander, right? So he couldn't have a, a pet. He couldn't have a dog or a cat. And every year, his son would say, Mom, Dad, I want a dog. And they're like, son, we cannot buy you a dog. You're going to be miserable. If we buy you a dog, you're going to be miserable. And so, you know, it was that thing every year. No, sorry. You know, if you, if you have children and you go and you see all the animals being adopted out front, and your kid's like, dad, give us a dog, right? So he had to say no every time, okay? And then he and his wife learned about this thing called a chinchilla. Do we have that picture, a chinchilla? Have you all seen a chinchilla before? Probably never, right? May, yeah. And so the thing about these chinchillas is that they are hypoallergenic, meaning that if you have a, a pet allergy, you can have a chinchilla and you will not, you know, break out or whatever you have, whatever symptoms you have. And so Lee Strobel and his wife, they went out and they bought a chinchilla and chinchillas have this weird thing. They clean themselves by some sort of dust. It's like they get dust all over them. I, I don't understand it, but they named the chinchilla Dusty because they were clever people. They're like... What a great name for a chinchilla. And then they find out from other chinchilla owners that 90% of chinchillas are named Dusty. And it's really kind of funny. And so they've got Dusty, their child is happy, and they, of course, they got the starter cage. And the starter cage was getting kind of gross. It was getting nasty. It was small. It was crammed. You know, it was just smelled bad. And so one Christmas, they decided we're going to buy the cage of all cages. He called it the Disneyland of chinchilla cages. It's like three stories tall. It's got like built-in toys. I don't even know if chinchillas play with things, but apparently it can run around and do like different activities inside of this three-story cage where it had a little chute where it could run up to the different levels, right? And so they're all excited about Dusty getting his cage for Christmas. And so what they decide to do is they set up the, the old enclosure, the tiny little nasty one, right next to the big Disneyland three-story one. And they open both the doors and they put them like, boom, side to side to where he could just jump out of the small cage into the Disneyland cage. 
but Dusty is scared to death of the cage. And they try everything. They come over to the nice cage and like, come on, buddy, come on. Dusty's just, he's just scared. He's cowering in the corner, right? And they, they tried treats. Apparently, they like raisins. So they would put raisins in there. They're like, come on, Dusty. You can do it. Let's, let's get him over there. And nothing they would do would work. And Lee Strobel said this. The only thing I could think in that moment was, what if I could become a chinchilla? And I could use chinchilla language and maybe even jump into the other cage for him. He could follow my lead. He could see exactly that there is this whole other world waiting for him if I could just become one of them. Of course, the point he's making is this. The incarnation, the word becoming flesh, is about Jesus becoming one of us so that we don't just have ideas and myths and legends and ideologies and philosophies. We have God putting on flesh so that he could say to people who are trapped in sin, in brokenness, in the fallenness of a world that we were not created for. And he could say, look, there's so much more for you. And I'm going to become one of you, and I'm going to show you the way to get there. Because he was born, we can be born. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To support our work, you can like, share, subscribe, or you can donate at rin-church.org.